Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here this morning. If you're joining us online, I'm glad you're joining us this morning, wherever you are. And uh, I know that Tana is our online host today. And so you should say hi to Tana if you're online. There's a chat box wherever you are. You should say hi to her. Um, and that'd be awesome. We are back into the book of Matthew, Matthew 26. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along digital or in paper, you can follow Matthew 26 is where we're going to be. While you're turning there, a couple quick things for you. The first is this is that um, we talk about Rooted all the time. And we would tell you that if you want to get connected here, the best way to do that is to sign up for this thing we call Rooted. It's 10 weeks. It's awesome. It's, it's, a, it's a commitment. It's 10 weeks. Um, but everything good takes a commitment. And so um, we'd love for you to get signed up for Rooted. And you can learn more about it by texting the word Monmouth to 97,000. Here's the deal, though. Um, rooted only happens a couple times a year. And so there's all these gaps in between when we're having service, I mean, when we're having rooted, um, that we don't have stuff going on. And so we're going to begin this spring offering what we're just going to very, you know, we spend a lot of creative time, long creative meetings, and, you know, we're going to start offering these seminars on Saturday. And so we put a lot of brain power into it. And so we decided to call them. Saturday seminars. So if you want to get, if you want to get information about one, the first one's going to happen June 11th, I think is a Sunday. Um, there's going to be two going on simultaneously. One is a local um, counselor named Rita is going to come and, and talk about emotional, healthy spirituality and that kind of conversation. That would be great. Um, the other one is uh, Joe Hoover, who is a part of our church, and maybe you've seen him on stage before. Um, Joe and his wife have spent their life translating scripture for a tribal uh, people in Guinea, West Africa. And so he's going to come and talk about um, Greek and Bible translations and how you do things and why it's important and what to know and all that kind of stuff. It'd be incredibly fascinating if you want to be a bit of a Bible nerd. And so um, either one of those. And then lastly is uh, after service today, for those of you in the room, if you're watching online and you can get here, you can, you can come. Um, but a month or two ago, we had uh, a guy named Larry Grine come, and he came and uh, filled in one Sunday, but then he also kind of shared about this partnership we're wanting to develop with an organization called Mid-Valley Parenting. And there's a lot of really awesome things about it, uh, but the thrust of it is that you get an opportunity to invest in and pour into people who would otherwise never show up to a church or seek out Christians for answers about anything. And it's a really incredible opportunity to help navigate people in, in, in their parenting journey. And so if you have any interest in that conversation, I know that's really vague, but if you have any interest in that conversation, after service today, uh, Larry's going to be having a meeting to help get information and get you connect, all that kind of stuff. And you can show up to that by just going down our kids' hall, and the first room on the left um, is one of our kids' room, and there's some tables in there, and, and that's where you'll be meeting. Uh, Matthew 26, you got your Bible? Matthew 26, um, <clears throat> let, let me tell you this uh, before I read this to you. Uh, even as I stand here, having preached this during first service and having spent the week getting ready for this, <laughs> Um, I, I don't want to preach this sermon. Um, I, I don't. There, there's, there's, there's plenty of sermons, and you'll hear me say this sometimes. Like, there are sermons that I'm like, hey, today's going to be a rough week. Today's going to be hard. Like, so we got to deal with some things. We got to look at some things. But to be honest, most of the time I say that because I know it's going to be hard for you. 
right? The things God's already worked on me and I've kind of processed through and, and I can stand up here and I can say, look, I mean, scripture says this, it's really plain. It's really unpleasant, but it's really plain and it's for your good and for his glory. Um, but today, today we're going to talk about something that uh, probably hits a little close to home for me and for all of us. We're going to talk about betrayal. We're going to talk about being betrayed. Today, the story we're going to look at in Matthew 26, verse 47, beginning in verse 47, is the story of Jesus being betrayed by Judas. So, so let me read it to you, and, uh, and then we're going to chat. It says this, while he, being Jesus, was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. And says this, immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, rabbi, greetings, blessing, goodness be upon you. Is this kind of whole this phrase here that we translate as hail, rabbi. And he kissed him and Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on him, hands on Jesus, and seized him. The thing that's so unpleasant about betrayal is that is he can't be betrayed by an enemy. You know that? Like, it'd be so much easier if enemies could betray you because you already don't like the people, right? So when, so when someone you don't like at work, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your community, in your church, not in this church, but in other churches, right? If they do things that you don't like, you just go, another reason I don't like them. They're a jerk again. They're always a jerk. But betrayal is so crushingly disorienting because betrayal can only come from those who are close to you. you. You can only be betrayed by someone who's walked with you, who you've shared your stories with, maybe you've wept with, you've prayed with, you've shared meals together, you've lived life together, they've, they've sat at your dinner table. These are the only people, and when they betray you, it can be so massively just disorienting, because it comes from places you never expect. In fact, Matthew wants us to notice the proximity of Judas, the one who betrays to Jesus. Look again at verse 47. Look at, look at how it describes Judas. This is actually one of the extremely um, common ways that all the gospel writers describe Judas. He was, while he's still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, the, the one who came to betray Jesus, the one who came to um, have him handed over to be murdered, the one who turned his back on him, wasn't someone who'd been against him the whole time. It was no surprise to us or to anyone when the Pharisees showed up to arrest Jesus. Because we know they didn't like him. But who showed up? was one of his 12, was one of his friends, was one of the people who he'd spent most closely with. The last three years was one of those who, when they come, you remember the story? They say, hey, your mom and your family are here to take you home. And what does Jesus say? He says, who's my family? But, but these, these are my brothers and these are my sisters. These are like his ride or die dudes who he's with. Jesus says at one point, he says, foxes have, have, have dens. 
But the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. For three years, Judas had followed with him on nights as the sun was beginning to set, not sure where they were going to sleep that night. Judas had been with Jesus when he, when he laughed and when he rejoiced and, and when he wept. Judas was with Jesus that, that moment when he goes to see his friend who has died. And, and there's that really um, simple, short statement that just says this, that just says, Jesus wept. Judas knew Jesus in a kind of intimacy that none of us will know this side of heaven. Of all the stories that we have compiled in scripture, Judas knew every single one of them because he was there in those moments. Judas was one of the 12 who Jesus took bread and he handed it to him. And he took fish and he handed it to him. And Judas took the, the bread and the fish and he went out and started feeding people. And he watched the bread and the fish multiply in his hands. He, Judas was on the boat when Jesus came walking on the water to him. Judas was there every moment with him. The thing that is so crushingly disorienting for us when we're betrayed, when someone disappoints us, when someone turns their back on us, is the intimacy that we had with them. I don't, I don't know what your last year, two years, season of your life has looked like, but you live long enough and there will be someone who will betray you. Someone you've lived life with deeply, laughed with, wept with, shared a rich life with, and they will betray you. In fact, Jesus knows this is coming. There's a messianic prophecy. It says this in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friends in whom I trusted. <laughs> Look at that, right? This, is, this messianic prophecy is written as if Jesus is saying these words. These are words he's saying about Judas. And you could probably think in your life of the people who feel like Judas to you, who you trusted, who ate my bread I can think of people who sat at our dinner table, whose kids played with our kids, who we prayed with and rejoiced with and walked through very difficult seasons together, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It wasn't the enemy that was the most painful. And in your life, the rejection and disappointment of those who stand against you will never be the most painful because you've already expected it. It'll be those who walk near to you. And, and, and not only is it disorienting, um, when someone who walks near to you, who betrays you, uh, it feels like an overwhelming defeat. It, it may only be one person, right? It, it may only be one person in your family. It may only be one coworker, a friend, someone in your community. It may only be one. But, but are you with me? Like when, when that one person betrays you, it feels like millions, it feels like an army suddenly stands against you. In fact, in Jesus' case, that's exactly what happened. Look, look, look back at our passage. Oh, sorry, actually, this is in one of the other Gospels. Um, uh, th this, is, this is what's described in one of the other Gospels. It says this. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and then describes him going to get Jesus. When you, when you think about pictures, paintings, you've seen, not pictures because there, there weren't cameras. When you've seen paintings 
or sketches or something you've seen of Jesus' betrayal. Um, the ones I've always seen, the way I've always envisioned it was, um, you know, Jesus with his other 11 dudes, right? And they were in a garden, a quiet, small garden. And then Judas comes walking up and maybe the picture is actually of the moment of the embrace, right? And, and there's like maybe a dozen or two dozen people standing behind Judas, right? That's, that's how I've envisioned it. But look at what the gospel writer says though. He received a cohort. Do you know how much a cohort is? A cohort is a tenth of a legion. Do you know how much a legion is? A legion is 6,000 Roman soldiers ready for war. So, so, so repaint the picture in the garden with me, right? Despite all these other officers and, and people who come, the crowds that come, the religious leaders that come, no less than 600 soldiers come marching into the garden, fully clad, ready for war, to take this rebellion down. This is what's standing in front of Jesus. Some commentators suggest that there may have been as many as 2,000 people. Remember what Matthew said? with swords and clubs. 2,000 people standing in front of Jesus and at the head of the spear comes walking Judas. Doesn't betrayal feel like that sometimes? Like it's just one, but it feels like overwhelming defeat. And when we're presented with this experience of betrayal, of rejection, of disappointment of someone who was so close and so intimate with us, uh, we, we have two options. Not two options. We have two things that we most often do. The first one is this. The, fir the first one that we most often do is we just run. Like, we, we just want to quit on everything. We want to quit on the friendship. We want to quit on the marriage. We want to quit on the job. We want to quit on the community. We want to quit on the church. We want to quit on the family. We want to quit on whatever it is. And in fact, this is, this is what we see in the disciples. Um, Mark, Mark writes this little um, like autobiographical uh, comment. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, and you're going to see why in just a second. It says this, look at this. A young man, now we don't have to go into a lot of reasons why, but we know this was Mark, okay? Contextually, we know this was Mark, okay? Mark, who's writing this gospel, was following him. So, so not only is Jesus and the 11 disciples, but apparently on Jesus' side, there are other people who are following him as well, one of them being Mark. Now, at the time, Mark is probably 15 or 16 years old, okay? Wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. Because remember, they tried grabbing everybody. Jesus says, you just came for me, let these all go. And, and the, the maybe 1,000, 1,200 people try and grab everybody who's there with Jesus, but it says this, but he pulled free from the linen sheet and escaped naked, just running through the streets of Jerusalem in the middle of the night, but naked, right? I love that Mark included this. Like he didn't have to, but Mark included this story about himself. But isn't this, is this what you want to do? I know there have been times it's what I want to do, not run naked through the streets of Jerusalem, but to quit, to run, just say, fine, fine. I'm done. I'm done. If it's going to be that, I'm done. The other temptation we have is we either want to run or, or we want to fight. We either want to run, we want to quit, or we want to fight, we want to make war. Matthew 26, verse 51, it tells us this. If you're still there in Matthew 26, 
you can see it, it says this, one of those who were with Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us who it was because Matthew apparently is a good enough friend to not drop Peter's name. But the other, other gospel writers tell us who it was, and it was Peter. It says, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, there's a lot going on in this little um, verse here that, that we need to unpack, we need to think about, some things we need to think about. First of all is, is just setting the scene correctly. Um, when you see this word sword, what you probably think of is like a middle, uh, middle ages, you know, like big, long sword, right? And like Peter's like pulling out this, like out of his sheath and right? It, that's not at all what happened, okay? What, Mar what Peter probably had was um, a, a, a glorified dagger, it was probably 12 to 18 inches long. The blade was probably about this long. And, and he would have kept it on his side. In fact, there's another spot that tells us that when they were going to the garden, the disciples apparently knew there was going to be a rumble, right? Knew like West Side Story, there was going to be a rumble going on. And so they came prepared. So they make a count, and it tells us they had two swords. Peter's got one of them, right? And then Peter pulls the sword. Now remember the scene, Right? There's a thousand to two thousand people with no less than six hundred military soldiers prepared for war, and the disciples have two daggers. But what does Peter do? Right? Peter pulls that sucker out, and and then when you think about it, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But if you weren't here, you may not have heard it. Is um, a lot of times when we visualize cutting off someone's ear, Peter cutting off someone's ear. What we think is that he took the sword and he went like this. Right? Because how do you cut someone's ear off? Like it's right here. You cut their ear off like that, right? The problem is, is that if he'd done that, the sword would have ended up in his shoulder and that would have been way more significant than some cartilage missing off the side of his head. What Peter probably did is Peter probably took the sword, was like, this is game, this is it, here we go, let's rumble, right? And he took the sword and he probably took the sword and swung this way to try and cut off the official, the high priest, to try and cut his head off, right? This is like, Peter's all in. And what probably happened is he swung this way, the blade kind of like bounced off the dude's skull and just like a chunk of the side of his head came out. This is, and we, we give Peter a hard time um, for a lot of things like this, but, but you can kind of understand what Peter's trying to do in this. Peter just moments ago they're having dinner, and, and Jesus says, you know, hey, you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to run from me. And then what's Peter say? Remember what Peter says? He says, no, Lord, I, I would never do that. Right? And Jesus goes, <laughs> okay, Peter, um, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And you remember what, you, what Peter says? He says, if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. Right? Peter thinks this is his moment. Like Peter, in all of his bravado, thinks this is the moment. Not that they're going to defeat and win victory, but he thinks this is the moment. He's going down with the man he committed his life to. He's ready for war. We run or we fight. It's what we want to do when someone betrays us, Right? We want to make sure that other people know that they're scum. We want to make sure that people know that they don't have character. We want to make sure that people know the truth about the kind of person that they really are. But Jesus does something totally atypical to human nature. 
Jesus does something totally different than what any of us would do. But it begins with how he prepares himself. And I think this is incredibly essential. Jesus knows that this moment is coming. He's, he's told the disciples. In fact, um, while they're having dinner, Judas is there. And, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Right? And Judas is like, who, Lord? Who would do such a thing? And Jesus is like, oh, okay, Judas. Um, as long as we're going to play this game, here, here's how it's going. Um, the one I give the bread to. Right? Like, he knows this is coming. He knows this moment's coming. But he prepares himself for it. Jesus prepares himself by bathing himself in prayer and in scripture. Right before this moment happens, where's Jesus? He's in the garden praying for well over an hour. Jesus is on his face praying. He's praying so intensely with such um, fervor and such angst that, that one gospel writer tells us that he begins to sweat blood, which is um, not actually sweating blood. It's a medical condition that occurs in some people. When you're under, in such intense strain, you can begin to have blood vessels pop near your hairline that blood just comes out of the pores and it looks like sweat of blood is coming out. Jesus' life is bathed in prayer. Not only that, Jesus' life is bathed in scriptures. Twice in this one exchange, twice he says almost the exact same thing. He says this, but all this has taken place in the chaos. Some dude, half of his head is missing and he's bleeding and you imagine he's screaming and crying for his mama and Peter's there and there's a, he's holding a sword that's got blood dripping off of it and in the moment of chaos, a thousand people standing on the other side of Jesus, twice he says the exact same thing. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scripture of the prophets. You see, Jesus' life was so bathed in prayer and in scriptures, he was not surprised or startled or thrown off by this moment. Now, we ourselves, unlike Jesus, may not know when that moment will come of great hardship. But we can be assured that if we live long enough in a broken and sinful world, that we will experience rejection and betrayal and brokenness and sin exploding like shrapnel out onto us. And for those moments, we must prepare ourselves in bathing ourselves in prayer and scripture. Because Jesus has bathed himself in prayer and scripture, he, he, here's the next step. Because he bathed himself in prayer and scripture, he was confident in God's goodness and his power. He was confident in God's goodness and his power. It says this, Matthew 26, verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? Now, just, um, just know this word here in Greek isn't appeal like, like please, please, please. That's not the, that's not the kind of word. Um, this is more of like a, an appeal, like, a, like an IOU, right? Just like calling in a debt, right? Just like, don't you think I can just like ring, 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 hey, God, right? It's that kind of appeal, right? Appeal to my father. And it says, he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, this is just like Jesus' like most humble flex ever in all of Scripture. Do you remember um, how, what was the name of the group that uh, Judas showed up with? Anybody remember what it was called? It was a Roman cohort, cohort, a cohort. And you remember how a cohort is measured. A cohort is a tenth of a 
a legion. So look, first of all, look at what Jesus is saying, right? You showed up with a cohort? You don't think that I could summon 10 of those 12 times over? You, you don't think 600 soldiers come stomping in and you don't think 72,000 angels could show up at a moment's notice? You think I'm afraid of your 600 soldiers? Jesus says elsewhere, he says, nobody, nobody takes my life. Nobody takes my life. You think I'm afraid? Jesus stood on absolute resolved confidence in God's goodness not some sort of like fake, fanciful, made-up goodness, you know, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, for you to prosper, you know, not, not, not taken out of context, not that kind of thing. He, he knew that everything that God was doing, that all things work together for the, for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purpose, that all things that God is doing are for our good and for his glory. He was confident in that. And he was confident, assured in the power of God that in a moment's notice, he could call in an IOU and 72,000, who are you picking? 72,000 angels or 600 Roman soldiers? I mean, the fact that there is one angel guarding the Garden of Eden and there's 72,000 of them that could show up at a moment's notice. He was bathed in scripture and prayer. So he stood in confidence of God's goodness and God's power. And so he responds differently. He responds with grace and forgiveness. Uh, Romans 12, verse 18 says this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, right? When people betray you, when they disappoint you, when they reject you, when they turn your back on you, never take revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's, if he's thirsty, give him a drink. If, he, if he's naked, clothe him. If, he, if he's weeping, comfort him. If he's alone, sit with him, walk with him, care for him. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus responds differently, bathed in prayer and scripture, resolute in God's goodness and power. He can hang on the cross and say these words, Father, forgive them. You know, a lot of times when I've read that story in the past, here's, here's where I kind of envision it. Maybe you did too. I, I envision, I just envision it so narrowly. And I, and I don't think it's the heart of Jesus. I envision Jesus like hanging up on the cross, nails driven in, and he's hanging there, close to breathing his last, and he looks down at the Roman soldiers who may be still holding the hammer, who drove the nails into his hands and his feet, and he says, Father, forgive him. But I think Scripture would reinforce the truth that his plea of forgiveness was for so much more than that one Roman soldier extended all the way to Judas who greeted him with a kiss, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know. Father, forgive him. He got mixed up. Father, forgive him. There was bitterness and anger in his heart. Father, forgive him. Jesus instead responds with forgiveness and grace and mercy, even to the faces of those who betrayed him and eventually would crucify him. Here's the unpleasant truth, though. We could look at the story and we could we'd like try and wrestle with and think about it. And I think there's some good things we can do about thinking about like 
how do we respond to betrayal and disappointment? How do we respond to rejection? But, but the truth of the gospel is a lot uglier than that. The truth of the gospel is this, is that you and I, we're a lot more like Judas than we are Jesus. That far more often, we are a lot more like the one who betrayed, who rejected, who was unfaithful, who turned our back, whose sin has splattered out into the world like shrapnel, destroying those closest to us that we love the most. In fact, Colossians 1 says this of us. This is, this is who we are. We're not the Jesus in the story. We're not the one full of grace and mercy and kindness and peace. This is us. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies. You see, according to the gospel, we're not the ones standing behind him. We're not the 10 back, the 11 back there going, come on, Jesus, come on, Jesus. We're, the, we're on the other side. We're enemies with God in our minds because of your evil behavior. But now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, the message of the gospel is that every single one of us stood on the other side of the garden, coming with swords and with clubs, enemies of God in our minds and in our hearts. But because of God's great mercy and kindness for every single one of his kindness overflowing, the abundance of grace and mercy and goodness that he gave himself in our place and he hung on that cross. And he said to me, and he said to you, he said to us, church, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they don't know what they do. Now you see the the real unpleasant part of this whole thing is that because of the grace we've been shown, God has demanded that we show the same kind of grace and mercy. That, we, that, that because of what Christ has done for us, because when we recognize that we are more often the Judas than we are the Jesus in the story, that we are more often the betrayer, the one full of sin and brokenness than we are the one showing grace and mercy, that when we recognize that it is God who has shown us grace and mercy so that we might come stand beside him, that we might have life, that we might be presented without blemish and free from accusation, here's what God says of you. Here's the expectation now. You have to do the same thing. It says this in Matthew 6. I hate this verse. Can I be honest with you? But if you don't forgive others, then your father will not forgive you. Church, there's no, there's no context around this. There's, there's no way to walk around this, to, to, to simplify this, to make it easier, to make it more palatable. This is the truth of the gospel. That we are the enemies, that we are the ones who betrayed, that we are the ones who have come to crucify him. But because of his grace and mercy, he hangs on the cross and he says to you and me, Father, forgive them. And if I'm going to forgive you, then you have to be people who forgive those who betray you, who reject you, who disappoint you, who sit at your table and eat your bread and turn their back on you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive you. I heard a theologian, he said this, and it was weighty and profound and beautiful, and he said this. He said, um, 
He said, as long as we carry the sword, we cannot carry the cross. So the question for you today is will you continue to carry the sword of bitterness and anger and hatred, wanting to destroy, wanting to run, wanting to attack? Or will you lay it down and take up the cross of Christ so that you might show the same kind of mercy and forgiveness and grace that has been shown you?